Folks, have you checked out the Irish History Podcast shop recently? Right now, I have a sale of 30% off everything when you use the code SALE30. So go to irishhistorypodcast.ie forward slash shop and get 30% off everything when you use the discount code SALE30. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Hi folks. Before we begin today's show, I just want to thank everyone who has supported my crowdfunding campaign to make that series on the Great Famine through 2017. Now, as I've mentioned in previous episodes, I launched a campaign at the website patreon.com where listeners like you can become patrons of the podcast and support that new series on the Great Famine, which will run through 2017. So far, 61 listeners like you have become patrons and supported the show. I still need more people like yourself to get behind what is an ambitious project to make that series on the Great Famine. So if you have been thinking of supporting the show, now's the time to do it. When you become a patron, you get lots of great rewards. These include exclusive episode guides, a patrons-only monthly podcast, and monthly online discussions for patrons, where you can ask me questions about the show. You can get all this today and help me with those ambitious plans for the series on the Great Famine in 2017 by going to the website patreon.com forward slash Irish podcast. That's patreon.com forward slash Irish podcast. Now let's get into today's show. The Phoenix Park Murders Part 2. The Manhunt. Part 1 of this series on the Phoenix Park Murders looked at the assassination of Lord Frederick Cavendish and Thomas Henry Burke on May the 6th 1882 as they walked through the Phoenix Park. In the aftermath while the murder stunned and shocked in equal measure Detectives in Dublin set about finding what were the most famous assassins in Irish history. Now this manhunt was by no means straightforward and it would take two more murders and a fascinating story involving some questionable tactics on the police's behalf to solve the case. This proved to be a story of a relentless manhunt through Dublin with more than a few twists along the way. Through the summer of 1882, Dublin reeled in the aftermath of the Phoenix Park murders. The city had gained a degree of international notoriety, particularly given that one of the victims, Lord Frederick Cavendish, was related to the English Prime Minister. The story had made newspapers around Europe and indeed the world. It even made headlines in India by late May. Back in Dublin, however, a major manhunt was underway. With the eyes of the world on the city, the killers had to be brought to justice. However, finding those involved was less than easy. In a city of quarter of a million people, the killers had easily melted back into the densely crowded streets and neighbourhoods. There was no CCTV, DNA and very limited forensics to identify them. The case would have to be solved using intelligence, 
but the initial leads the police had were not exactly precise. While the killers had identified themselves as a group called the Irish National Invincibles, this did little to explain who they were. This was a previously unheard of organisation. However, given the murders were political in nature, it was fair to say that the Invincibles were almost certainly linked to one of two groups in Ireland, the Fenians or the Land League. Now the Fenians surely topped the list. They were a militant underground republican organisation committed to gaining Irish independence through armed struggle. They certainly had the means and the men necessary to carry out the attack. However, that said, the Fenians were generally more interested in launching mass armed insurrection rather than carrying out individual assassinations. Further to this, they were somewhat disorganised in the early 1880s and the police viewed them as sufficiently wicked but did not have sufficient brains and money to carry out the attacks. The other possibility was the Land League, or at least individuals within it. The League was a tenants' organisation formed in 1879 and over the past three years it had been engaged in a bitter struggle with landlords across Ireland. While the League itself almost certainly had nothing to do with the killings, it was possible that some of its over 100,000 members did. The League's struggle with landlords had boiled over into violence on numerous occasions, with dozens of murders taking place. It was conceivable, therefore, that individual members of the Land League had formed the Irish National Invincibles and carried out the attack. That said, there was problems with this theory too. The Land War had never been particularly bitter in Dublin, and the murders associated with it tended to be motivated by personal grievances and very much rooted in local communities. The Phoenix Park murders were clearly different. They were very much a political assassination which struck at the heart of British power in Ireland. Now to complicate matters even further still for the police, separating out these lines of inquiry was not easy because the Fenians also played a central role within the Land League. The treasurer of the League, Patrick Egan, was a Fenian, as were its two most prolific organisers, Michael Davis and Thomas Brennan. The upshot of all this was that there was no clear group who seemed able or willing to carry out the attack and the police had to pick apart a web of overlapping organisations to try and find those responsible and understand how they had carried out the attack. With a list of possible suspects running into the thousands, the detectives faced a stark challenge, and in the initial days of the investigation, they trawled through files and scoured the streets, alleys, back lanes and tenements of Dublin, looking for information. Undoubtedly, rumours would start to circulate about who had done it. However, given hatred for the police ran deep, particularly in Dublin's working class communities, most in the city would not come forward with information. Therefore, the police were reliant on a network of agents and informers. Somebody, somewhere, had to know something, and eventually one of their informers would hear it. In spite of the considerable obstacles facing them, the police very quickly built up a picture of those involved, even if they did not fully understand the organisation behind the murders that is, the Irish National Invincibles. By late May, they had a list of names of those involved in the killing, the most important of these being two men, James Carey and his friend Joe Brady, both Dublin Fenians. Carey, 37, was well known around Dublin. A flamboyant character who was a builder by trade, he owned several properties in the city and was an active participant in commercial life in Dublin. Joe Brady, his friend, was 25 and a fellow Fenian. He worked as a stonemason and still lived with his parents in what must have been a pretty crowded house. He was the second oldest of 25 children. 
However, while the police had strong intelligence to suggest these men were central figures in the case, it was of little use yet. They had no proof to bring before a court other than the word of anonymous informers, which they couldn't use. The police at this point acted cleverly. They resisted the temptation to arrest Brady and Carey. While they knew them to be almost certainly guilty, they instead chose to bide their time and build a case. So, through the course of the summer of 1882, detectives continued to interview the dozens of people who were in the Phoenix Park on the night in question and slowly began to build up a clearer picture of the crime, which they then tried to link to the suspects. To many, this seemed like no progress was being made. In early June, a month after the attacks, the lack of arrests was provoking criticism. One source in a Dublin court claimed, The extraordinary escape of the perpetrators of the Phoenix Park murders makes it necessary that our present means employed for the detection of crime should be reconsidered. In the absence of arrests, bizarre rumours also started to circulate in the press, including one which claimed the killings had been a conspiracy of landlords designed to scupper attempts of conciliation between the British government and the Land League. This, of course, was utter nonsense. The police knew they were on the right track with the Fenians, Brady and Carey, but whether they could build a case to prove this was another matter entirely. At the end of June, a Fenian, James Mullet, turned informer, and his evidence further confirmed the police suspicions about Carey and Brady. But given Mullet resolutely refused to testify, they were no closer to cracking the case. Nevertheless, the slow, methodical approach of the police began to work through unintended consequences. In the days and weeks after the murder, the assassins were undoubtedly nervous. However, as the summer progressed, they had still not been arrested or faced police interview, and it seemed they were getting away with what was the crime of a century. Slowly, they were emboldened, and during the late summer and into the winter of 1882, the group who had carried out the murders began to plan further actions. This was a terrible slip-up, because when they carried out two more attacks in July and November 1882, the police were able to gain some crucial evidence. The first of these attacks took place on July the 4th, 1882. On July the 4th, 1882, at 1am in the morning, the police were informed of a murder that had just taken place under a railway bridge close to Dublin city centre at Seville Place. This killing was brutal. The victim had been shot four times and stabbed three times. The dead man, John Kenny, a dock worker, was found in clothes that were said to be from a slop shop and well-worn. Given slop shops were tailors that made poor quality but cheap clothing, the dead man lived a life far removed from that of Frederick Cavendish, the English lord killed in the Phoenix Park. But Kenny's murder began a chain of events that started to unravel the case. Kenny's murder was political. There was little doubt about that. Even from looking at his mutilated corpse, the large brass buckle on his belt that said God Save Ireland indicated he was an Irish nationalist, the slogan having been coined by the Manchester Martyrs during their trial back in 1867. His funeral a few days later proved that his murder had been linked to his political activities. While John Kenny lived in a densely populated working class neighbourhood in Dublin, no one attended his funeral. It was boycotted by his own friends and neighbours who suspected Kenny was a police informer and it was this that had led to his murder. It fell to his wife to accompany his corpse to Glasnevin Cemetery. Then when she, that's Kenny's wife, 
returned home, she found three men waiting for her, who warned her not to give up any information about her husband's political activities, or else she would end up in a grave beside him. However, Kenny's wife did not remain silent. Instead, she immediately informed the police, and the story was soon all over the press. The police now immediately moved. They knew that those involved in the murder of John Kenny and the intimidation of his wife were of the same Fenian background to the prime suspects in the Phoenix Park murders, Joe Brady and James Carey. It was even possible that Brady and Carey were involved in Kenny's murder. While they could not draw a direct link yet, the detectives were happy to use the case of John Kenny to round up the suspects from the Phoenix Park case. On July 6th, 1882, exactly two months after the Phoenix Park murders, two detectives followed James Carey through St. Stephen's Green. When they moved to arrest him, Carey, however, struggled and attacked the police. He nearly made good an escape until several members from the United Service Club, an association for former members of the Army and Navy, apprehended him. While they could not pin the Kenny murder on Carey, the police undoubtedly hoped his arrest would reveal more about the Phoenix Park murders, and this strategy worked. After news of his arrest emerged, a man who rented a flat from Carey became suspicious about his landlord's activities in the weeks prior to the Phoenix Park murders. Carey had visited the house and had put something in the attic. On further investigation, the tenant found this to be knives and guns. Although they were not proof of anything in themselves, this was strong evidence that the police could use against Carey and something he would surely struggle to explain. They didn't reveal this to Carey and during his imprisonment in the summer of 1882 he emerges as a cocky, self-assured figure who began to court fame and press attention. He was sentenced to 14 days in solitary confinement in late August after he seems to have set off fireworks inside the walls of Kilmainham Prison. Meanwhile, the police investigation into the murder of John Kenny stalled and eventually came to nothing and Carey, along with others, were released in September. The police, however, were far from finished with Carey, but he seems to have only been emboldened by his experience. Indeed, in November 1882, after he was released, he even ran for public office and successfully became a member of Dublin City Council. This was not the action that we might expect from a man involved in one of the highest profile murders in the century. Surely it would have served him best to keep a low profile, but Carey, in many respects, wasn't the brightest of individuals. The murder of John Kenny and the experience of Carey also served to steal the confidence in the wider group. It probably seemed to them that the police were totally incompetent at this point, and in late 1882 they carried out a pretty audacious attack. Their victim on this occasion was a man called Dennis Field, who had recently sat on a jury that convicted a Fenian. Field was suspected of acting in concert with the prosecution to guarantee a conviction. At 6pm on a November evening, he was stabbed several times in Dublin city centre. He did survive, but this attack was similar in some respects to the Phoenix Park murders, and the police immediately suspected the assassins had struck again. They launched a series of arrests and a major inquiry was launched, with the power to subpoena anyone suspected of involvement. This time, Joe Brady, a close friend of James Carey, and the other main suspect in the Phoenix Park murders, was arrested. Carey, now a city councillor, was not brought in. His political position undoubtedly ensured the police took a different approach with him. While no charge was brought against Joe Brady, this murder, which had been in fact carried out by Brady, produced further insights into the Phoenix Park murders and the Irish National Invincibles, and the police started to edge closer to building a case against them. 
the context at the time was all important in this. The arrests and questioning of the suspects for the attack on Dennis Field took place to the backdrop of the execution of those prosecuted for the Mam Trastner murders. They had all been condemned on the word of informers who had saved themselves by telling all. Undoubtedly now, the fear that someone would break played on the minds of all those involved and arrested and even suspected of being involved and indeed prompted some of them to think about informing themselves. In this climate, and after substantial pressure, a Fenian called Robert Farrell broke after interrogation on January the 4th, 1883, and came forward to the police, giving detailed information about the nature of the Invincibles. While he was only a peripheral figure, Farrell was able to paint a picture of who and what exactly the organisation was. According to Farrell, the Invincibles were a separate organisation recruited from members of the Fenians. Their ultimate aim was to assassinate senior British figures in Ireland. With this testimony and the other evidence the police had gathered, they felt they had enough to move. They knew they needed more to secure convictions, but they felt that arrests might flush out this information. The case was about to be broken wide open, but before we look at that, I want to take a quick break. A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at UH1.com. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally, for most people, are the easy button, Right. For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. In January 1883, detectives made their move against the individuals they suspected of being involved in the Phoenix Park murders. They raided 17 houses early on the morning of Saturday the 13th of January. Among them was 19A Denzel Street, now ironically known as Fenian Street, the home of James Carey. They also raided 22 North Ann Street, the home of Joe Brady. They were brought to court the next day and an investigation launched into their involvement into a conspiracy to murder certain government officials and others. The description was vague and there was no mention of the Phoenix Park murders yet, but it was clearly overshadowing everything. Of all the prisoners, it was James Carey who made the press when he claimed he would sue for false arrest and on another occasion emerged from a prison van smoking a cigar. His confidence seemed unbreakable. Now the inquiry initially focused on a supposed conspiracy to kill Lord Frederick Cavendish's predecessor, George Forster, and other high-ranking British officials in Ireland. Clearly, if the police could establish a conspiracy to assassinate Cavendish's predecessor, the next step would logically be a conspiracy to kill Cavendish. However, the police case was still weak. They had no one who was actually present at the murders. All they could so far really prove was that the men accused had discussed assassinations and had followed politicians, none of whom had actually been attacked. The star witness was Robert Farrell, but as I said before, he was at the periphery of the group. 
while he could name Carey and Brady, amongst others, as prominent members of the conspiracy, this didn't prove murder. However, this investigation finally led the police to what they wanted, a man who was actually there on the day of the Phoenix Park murders. The killers had been brought to and from the scene of the crime in two carriages and on February the 10th, one of the two drivers, Miles Kavanagh, came forward and testified. The case was building and the pressure on the prisoners was mounting. With each passing week, the police were adding more details. While the prisoners were still holding their nerve, they all knew if one turned and testified against the rest of them, they would surely all hang. On Saturday the 8th of February, another hearing was held and now the prosecution brought forward their case clearly. Of the original, 21 men, 8 including James Carey and Joe Brady, were formally charged with the Phoenix Park murders of Frederick Cavendish and Thomas Henry Burke. As I've said though, the case against the 8 was still not completely watertight. The prosecution had the carriage driver and the testimony of the Fenian Robert Farrell, along with some witnesses who could put individuals at the scene of the crime. They also had further evidence about certain individuals, for example in the case of James Carey, the police had the weapons that had been found in his house by the tenant. Nevertheless, they still lacked an informer from within the group, someone who could tell them how the killings had actually happened and who had done what. This was essential to seal the case. So they now set about manipulating the prisoners to get one to turn against the others. For the prisoners, they were in a terribly difficult spot now at this point. They were all held in separate cells and had no idea if some of the others were talking to the police. But all the while they knew if any one of their fellow prisoners broke, they would all hang. This played heavily on their minds, but they also knew the idea that if they became the informer and saved it themselves, it would be seen as the ultimate betrayal. The police, armed with this knowledge, began to manipulate the prisoners. The prosecutor, John Mallon, began to focus in on one man he viewed as the weakest, telling him that another prisoner, Daniel Curley, had confessed all. This ratcheted up pressure in the cell for this prisoner. It must have been unbearable. Then Mallon just turned the screw further. He met the prisoner's wife and told her a similar story. She naturally then wrote to her husband and repeated the claim that the prisoner, Daniel Curley, had confessed all. While this was all completely untrue, it led to one of the most famous betrayals and indeed informers in Irish history which would crack the case. On February 5th 1883 when the court hearings resumed and the prisoners filed out into the dock they were one man short. Then a few minutes later another door opened and James Carey was brought in and placed in the witness box. This man who had been the most flamboyant, arrogant and self-assured of the prisoners had broken, switched sides and was now going to testify against the other prisoners. This was a media sensation. The man was a city councillor and a prominent businessman too. For Carey, when he saw Daniel Curley, the prisoner who supposed he had told all, still in the defendant's box, he surely realised he had been duped. But there was no way back. In fact, given his arrogance, he instead tried to maintain that he was in fact taking the high moral ground by informing and almost argued the other prisoners should be grateful. He claimed he was only informing to stop others not already arrested being implicated. It was a selfless act of damage control, according to Carey, although no one would see beyond the fact that he was going to hang his friends in what was a clear bid to save his own life. For the other prisoners, they can only have been seething, particularly given the way the events in the Phoenix Park had played out on the day in question. K 
Carey now revealed the nature of the Invincibles as an organisation recruited from the ranks of the Fenians and also individuals involved in the Land League, but it was distinct from both organisations. He then gave details about how the murders had taken place. The surgical knives used had been brought from England and the initial target had in fact been Frederick Cavendish's predecessor, Forrester. However, they failed to kill Forrester despite six attempts. It was only after he resigned and returned to England in May 1882 that the Invincibles turned their attention to the Chief Undersecretary, Thomas Henry Burke. Frederick Cavendish was only killed by accident because he had been with Burke on the day in question. Carey admitted that he had played an essential role. It was he who identified Thomas Henry Burke to the seven other members of the Invincibles, but he had then walked away to observe the murder from around 300 metres distance. If anything, this only added to the wider sense of betrayal. He had directed the killings as such, but now was about to see several men hang first. With this evidence, a proper trial could begin, but for his act of betrayal, pretty much all sides now despised Carey. He had clearly played a central role in the murders, and for those who viewed the assassination with revulsion, they obviously despised him. Furthermore, though, many others saw his act of treachery against his fellow accomplices as despicable. Literally, he was a man hated by everyone. The ramifications of his decision to become an informer were seen within days when the windows of his house were smashed in. This was only the beginning. On April the 9th, just over 11 months after the murders, seven men stood trial. Carey's evidence was crucial and incontrovertible. It sealed the fate of the defendants. There was also a deeply personal betrayal as well. Joe Brady had been the godfather of one of Carey's children. Brady, who had been one of the men who actually carried out the murder, was found guilty and along with four others was sentenced to death. Brady went to the gallows and was executed on May 14th, 1883. James Carey at this point seems to have been utterly self-absorbed and delusional. After the trial of his friend Joe Brady, based on his evidence, he sent Brady's family a Bible with the words, After everyone betraying him, he saved himself and many others. These words weren't about Joe Brady, but instead about Carey himself, who could not see beyond his own self-pity. In the following weeks, four others were hanged. These were Daniel Curley, Michael Fagan, Thomas Caffrey, who pleaded guilty and seemed to have regretted his involvement, and finally Tim Kelly, who had to be tried on three occasions before a jury could convict him. Several others received lengthy prison sentences, having been convicted as accessories. One of the more well-known of these was James Fitzharris, bizarrely known as Skin the Goat, a carriage driver in Dublin. This brought the case to a conclusion. What was a remarkable conspiracy forged in the heat of the land war had been broken. Perhaps the killers could have escaped had they not been so emboldened in the aftermath. However, it was James Carey who was undoubtedly most to blame. His actions after the murder certainly drew further attention to them, while his testimony hanged his friends. Before we conclude, though, there is a fascinating postscript to this story. James Carey could not return to live in Dublin. It is not an overstatement to say he was the most despised man in the city. He would unquestionably be killed within days, either by a Fenian or possibly even someone outraged at the Phoenix Park murders. Carey instead decided he would settle in South Africa, 10,000 miles away and far from the city where he was hated. While he shaved off his beard and began to use his wife's maiden name, Power, he could not shed his ego, which had caused him so many problems already. He seemed to bask in the notoriety and on board the ship to South Africa he could not resist revealing his true identity to some passengers. 
In Cape Town, he continued to tell people, and by the time he boarded another ship to take him to Natal on the Indian Ocean, there was now little doubt as to who he really was. It was during this journey that another man, Patrick O'Donnell, had his suspicions confirmed when he saw a newspaper sketch of Carey from Dublin. O'Donnell, a man who had Fenian sympathies, felt compelled to act against the informer. While the ship was still at sea, he sought out Carey in his cabin. Producing a revolver, he shot and killed Carey on the spot. While it was later claimed the Fenians had dispatched O'Donnell to kill Carey, it seems that their meeting was purely coincidental. Patrick O'Donnell was arrested and brought ashore in South Africa. Given the crime happened at sea, he was put on board ship and taken back to London for trial. While Irish Americans would raise tens of thousands of dollars for his defence in what was a highly publicised trial, there wasn't much of a defence really to make. He was clearly guilty. Patrick O'Donnell was sentenced to death for the murder of James Carey and was executed at Newgate Prison in December 1883. James Carey's wife would return to Europe and settled in England where she lived under an assumed name with her three children. This is hardly surprising given her husband had become an utterly notorious figure even after his death. Indeed, during the 1913 lockout, the largest trade union dispute in Irish history, employers tried to smear the trade union leader Big Jim Larkin by claiming he was actually James Carey's son. Carey's notoriety was also immortalised in song in the 1950s when the famous ballad Take Her Up to Monto included the lyrics When Carey told and skinned the goat, O'Donnell caught him on the boat. He wished he'd never been afloat, the dirty scout. It wasn't very sensible to tell on the Invincibles. They stand up for their principles day and night. There we leave the story of the Phoenix Park murders. There will be no general podcast next week. As I said, the first patrons monthly podcast on the land war will be released exclusively through Patreon. To get that, you can sign up at patreon.com forward slash Irish podcast. I'll be back here the week after with more shows and don't forget I'm looking for topics so you can hit me up with your suggestions at history at irishhistorypodcast.ie that's history at irishhistorypodcast.ie until then slán deserves the best and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market.